Today I'll be reading from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. After the scripture reading, I will proclaim, this is the word of the Lord. And I would invite you to respond prayerfully. Speak, Lord, your servants here. Would you please stand with me as I read? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You messing with me? <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for saving Paul, giving him that great mind, filling him with such great thoughts. Thank you for his love for the Old Testament and you, the God of the Old Testament. Thank you for leading him to pen the letter to the Colossians. In these few minutes, would you grant us, God the Spirit, beautiful ability to surrender ourselves to the majesty and to the beauty of this particular passage. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. The overall point of the next few minutes is that the family flourishes when the members of the family embody Jesus. Real, real simple concept, but we're going to go into some particular points that have caused a great deal of hurt, a great deal of pain, and so I'm hoping that the beauty and the majesty of God's word is going to flow through in crystal, hope-giving purity. May that happen. So this passage is oftentimes referred to as a household passage. Uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is now being applied to the entire family, and that's what, what God wants us to think about this particular day. And before we even apply our thoughts to the specific teachings about the family, the first thing I would like to share is that this paragraph in the small letter to the Colossians is a commentary on one verse that you find in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. It's a commentary specifically on Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. And up on the screen, uh, I want to share with you a, a paraphr my paraphrase of the second part of that verse. You, this is God speaking, you, Eve, will desire to control your husband in the same way that sin desires to overpower you. And he, Adam, will lord it over you. Okay? So that is my paraphrase of Genesis 3.16, and it's a very, very important uh, passage to me because I happen to be married to that woman. Would you raise your hand, please? Okay. And she has a problem. Her problem is that she's married to me. <laughs> and because I am a guy or because I am a follower of Adam, the man we find addressed in Genesis 3, ever since the first act of disobedience, ever since the 
time that Adam and Eve looked at the fruit, very, very beautiful fruit on a very, very beautiful tree, God had already said, this fruit, even though it's beautiful, is deadly. This tree over here, very, very close by, it, the fruit of this tree gives life. It's, it's great stuff for you. This very, very attractive tree, I personally think it was more attractive, that's my guess. Okay. This very, very attractive tree, don't be fooled by it. That's what God says, because it, it's toxic. It's, it's deadly. And Adam and Eve apparently understood God, but then in chapter 3, the woman, the wife, looks at that fruit and says, my word, that's attractive. I bet you it's really tasty. And she follows the beauty of the tree, of the fruit. And she decides that maybe God didn't really know so much what he was talking about. And so she ate the fruit of that beautiful, beautiful tree. And then she gave a piece of the fruit to her husband, and he wasn't deceived like she was. He knowingly just followed her, and he bit into the fruit. And immediately the two died. Not completely, but they died in very, very important ways. And the way that they died is also a way that I have died. That's why Susie has a problem. Okay? Because ever since then, I have had this tendency at various very crucial times to rather than act lovingly toward her, I have decided that I'm a bigger deal than she is and it's very good, this is what I've decided, it's good for me to use whatever power I have over her so that I can feel better about myself. That registering? That's her problem. She's married to a guy who at critical junctures, rather than acting lovingly toward her, will act selfishly. And I will use my power to dominate her. Now, I particularly use my power to dominate her in one of the ways is whenever we're locked into some kind of, of conflict, my temptation is always to use my power to go quiet, to control things. That's my, that's my dominant key. But there are other times that I'm not nearly so familiar with it, but Susie, we've had talks about this, and Susie has told me that my face, I, I put this look on my face that's Glenn's dominant face. And when I put on my dominating look, then she feels some fear. And I... I'm, quite frankly, I'm not usually aware that I'm doing it. I'm trying to become more aware. Point that I'm trying to establish is that I have this tendency to dominate her. Hopefully I don't do this very often, but when you see the real stinky Glenn coming out, that's what I do. I have a problem also. I have a problem that I'm married to her. Now, it's not a very big problem because she is one slick chick. But there are times when she, out of her own insecurity, out of her own fear, 
She's going to position herself in relation to me in such a way that she can get me to do what she wants me to do, not because it's beautiful, but because she is out to feel better about herself. She's out to get her own way, and so she just does her Susie-ishly beautiful, ugly manipulation, just as I do to her. Okay. I have a problem, Susie has a problem. And I'm guessing that every person in this room has the same problem. Okay. So Genesis 3.16 is the context for this whole paragraph in Colossians. You with me? Okay, so let's go to a question. Really glennish, highfalutin, I suppose, question. Why did God create the family? And please don't tell me to make babies or to propagate the species, though that's true. Why did God create the family? And certainly, your mind hopefully is going to the first chapter of Genesis, where God creates man and woman, and he says, I've made you in my image, you're image bearers, and as image bearers, I want you to do a certain thing. I want you to influence animals, I want you to influence creation. I want you to be an influencer for my glory and for their good. The family exists to extend God's good reign over creation. Please accept that. Please do not accept a secondary or maybe even a tertiary good of the family. Please don't accept that the family exists as an, as an end in itself. It's just flat out not true. Okay. Now, let's go to another passage to try to answer with greater clarity why does the family exist. All of this, I trust, is going to be a good prelude for, for Colossians 3. Now, Genesis 18, verse 19, occurs just before the destruction of two gross little towns. One's called Sodom and the other's called Gomorrah. And those were towns that had, had regressed horrifically and they were just far, far, far from obeying God. And God lets us in on this little conversation that he's having. God says, I have chosen him, meaning Abram, who is soon going to become Abraham. I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him. See the family? That he may command his family, basically, to keep the way of the Lord by doing... Uh, and we hit these two wonderful, wonderful Old Testament virtues, which, by the way, are also wonderful New Testament virtues. Okay? It's righteousness and justice. For those of you who might be so inclined, this is the mishpat and this is a tzedakah of the Old Testament that becomes such a, a delightful living room of the whole Old Testament. And God says, I want Abram to teach and relate with his family in such a way that his family becomes an embodiment of righteousness and justice. Now note the following clause. So that the Lord may bring about to Abraham what he's promised him. What did he promise? Well, that goes back to Genesis chapter 12 when, Gen when God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation and in you all of the people groups of the world are going to be blessed. Okay? This is the only passage that I know of in the Old Testament that tells us how God wanted the Abrahamic covenant to be 
fulfilled within the sphere of the Old Testament. And that is by the family catching these virtues of God and living them out in such a way that the rest of the world would be impressed. Why does the family exist? It's the same notion as we found in Genesis 1. God wants us to love God, to obey him, to embody him. And as we embody him with the virtues of Christ, it turns us into an attractive people. Cool or not cool? Very cool. So, now let's jump to Colossians. Why did God have Paul begin the family section with the wife? In terms of patriarchal Mediterranean society, the order's all messed up. The order should begin with the husband. It was a hierarchical society. And Paul just, it's almost like he's rather politely sticking his tongue out at the whole Mediterranean culture. And he's saying that, hey, in Christ, typical family patterns, typical family standards are supposed to get turned upside down. That's, I think that's why he starts with the wife. Okay. Let's go on. Next slide, please. Why did God have Paul end the family section with the husband and wife as slave masters? Okay. If you go into the, the early part of chapter 4 of Colossians, there's some material that makes us 21st century folks uncomfortable. We live in a country that was involved in a... In a huge conflict. In part, the centerpiece of that conflict was, are all men created equal? We know about the black-white divide. That's a part of our history. We're still working it out. We're still filled with discord. But this particular chapter, uh, this particular passage, this particular time, was a time in which slavery existed. It, It was very, very common. And rather than criticize the institution, the way of living, Paul says, okay, I'm going to speak to it. And what I would like to make as a comment is that Paul does the most interesting thing here. He says, slave owners, also husband and wife, you are responsible to God the Father, to treat them well. Mediterranean society is going to say, you're not responsible to treat them well. But the gospel is within its, the culture of the day, is saying when Jesus Christ is reigning in people's hearts, the dominant cultural practices of the day need to surrender to Jesus Christ's Lordship. I hope that that gives you joy, pride, hope in being a follower of Jesus Christ and hope that in your culture, in this particular part of the United States of America and however your roots have brought you here, I'm hoping that you will taste a Lordship of Jesus Christ that will cause you to lovingly oppose 
prevailing standards which oppress, which restrict people badly, unhealthily. Okay, so now let's go on to another slide. Now I'm liable to get in trouble. Wives submit. So I'm going to tell you a Glenn and Susie story. And I think you're going to see immediately that it has to do with submission. Back in the, gosh, back in the 80s, that was a while ago, <laughs> Glenn and Susie believed that God was calling us to leave the United States of America and go to South America to live there and be uh, representatives of Jesus in the country of Brazil. We thought we were together. We thought we had prayed. Uh, we both really thought we were together. And there came a day when Terry, Susie's sister, called her and she asked this obnoxious question, which really wasn't obnoxious. Susie, are you going because you want to or are you going because Glenn expects you to? I don't think those are quite the right words, but it's pretty close to that. Is that right, honey? Close. I never get it totally right. And like, well, I don't, folks, I'll, I'll tell you, we had planned to do this together, but we didn't have time to work it together, and she's smart, so she wouldn't come up here with me unprepared. So therefore, I'm trying to represent her adequately. <laughs> So in her conversation with Terry, she said, well, of course we were together. We made this decision together. And that was true, but just almost immediately, Mrs. Johnson fell apart. And she was then became overwhelmed with the insecurity, the uncertainty of should she go to South America. More overwhelmed by the uncertainty, if she said no, then what would her husband think? How would her husband relate to her? Should she be a, ooh, I'm going to raise some hackles here. Should she be a submissive wife? The old idea of submission is, huh, husband wants to go, wife says, yes, sir. Is that not an old, okay. Well, my reaction, I can't say that it was the fruit of much thought about what husbandliness and wifeliness is like, but my reaction was we're just going to table the application process until you have certainty, if you do. And I think, I can't tell you with absolute certainty, I think I said, if you don't have certainty, we don't go. Did I say something like that? Okay, she said, I don't know, but at least there was no pressure. Yay, me. <laughs> okay. I did that because it made utter sense to me. Because I didn't want to pick up my wife and my two kids and move to a different cult culture, go all through, through all that work. I just didn't want to do that dragging her behind me. I wanted to be a husband who, if we're going to do that, let's go do it together. That was my thinking. Okay. Now, submission, what is it? Let's go to the next slide, please. Genesis 3.16 shows us what it isn't. 
You, Eve, will desire to control your husband, and he, Adam, will lord it over you. Those are the opposites. Those are anti-submission. Okay. Now, I'm now going to say something that's liable to tick off some people. Probably men. Probably certain men. If there are any Brazilian men here, close your ears. Okay. This idea of woman, obey me because I'm the head. That is the second part of Genesis 3.16, disguised. Called a virtue when it's really a vice. Did you hear me? Do I need to say it again? Susie, go to Brazil with me whether you like it or not. That is, he will lord it over you. That's my claim. Now I have to demonstrate it. Might be a good idea if I demonstrated that. Think so? Okay, let's go to the next slide. Let's ask ourselves the question, what in the boonies is this thing called submission? And before I define it as best I can for you, I want to ask, what's the tree, what's the, what's the semantic domain in which s- submission occurs? Okay? And I submit to you, I bet you like that one. Okay. A little aside is that Taproot Church is just a horrifical church if good humor is a characteristic of elders. We have, we have Will there and Jim over there who are punsters to the... <coughs> yes. Love you, you fellas. <laughs> Where was I? Yes, yes, yes. By reading this chapter, this verse here in 1 Peter 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject. There's your submission word. Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with what? Humility. Humility is a virtue. Submission is a sub-virtue under humility. Submission is a variety of humility, just as Fuji's and Granny Smith's are a variety of? Yes. Okay. What is submission? Submission is a kind of humility. Voila! It gets a little easier, doesn't it? Okay. So when we come to the decision, should Glenn and Susie go to Brazil, and then when Susie gets filled with uncertainty, then I could have said, woman, buck up. But that would not have been an act of humility. Instead, I trust you, I love you, I don't want to put you in a knowingly unfamiliar, uncomfortable situation unless you are willing. That's an act of humility on my part, and that is an act of submission on my part. 
Now, am I messing with the system? Is it only true that only wives are supposed to submit to husbands and that husbands are never supposed to submit to wives? Balderdash. Utter balderdash. Okay? So I'm hoping that you now can get a grasp that whatever submission's specific properties are, it is within the category of humility. And it is not in the category of involuntary obedience. Let's look at another slide. I'm going now to Psalm 81, verse 11. This is the only passage that I've found in Scripture that gives us a description of the characteristics of submission. Now, there could be that there are other passages, but I haven't found them. Okay? This is God speaking. He says, my, you see the submission on the second line. My people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not. There it is. Question. What is a fundamental characteristic of submission? It is listening. Okay. If you go to Luke and you, you read the story of, of our Lord Jesus when he was a little guy, when he was in Jerusalem, the text says very, very clearly that he was submitted to his parents as he returned to Jerusalem, or returned to Nazareth. I, the text doesn't say it quite as clearly, but I think that when Jesus was in the temple listening and asking questions of the scribes and, and the, the rabbis, he was submitting to them as well. Okay. Now, folks, you love submitting most of the time. You submit every time that you listen to someone well. So, this morning, my wife was with Brittany. Where, Brittany, where are you? Oh, and with the kids. Okay, so my wife was over at the Berean Press talking with, with Brittany Gutierrez. And they were enjoying some coffee, and they were having, I think what they would say, a good yak. Okay, now as they were having a good yak, question... Was Susie listening to Brittany? Was Brittany listening to Susie? You get one guess. Yes, they were having a great time. And as they were having a great time dialing into each other, Brittany was coming in under. And Susie was coming in under. Learning, listening, growing. That's what submission is. And as you listen, as you learn, then you pursue, you move towards that which is good and beautiful because submission almost always obeys. Submission becomes onerous, ugly, difficult only when somebody imposes it. And what I want to suggest is that most of the time imposed submission is not at all virtuous. I think there is an exception. I'm going to give you one. There, I recall one time in my just about 48 years of marriage when I, in no uncertain terms, told my wife, get over here, and I gave her no choice. Okay? And I, to tell you the truth, I didn't even say a word. What I did was I shrieked. Okay? I, we were living in Brazil. I walked out through this door, and this cypress fence here was, was burning. And I had pulled out I, my trusty hose, and out comes about a milliliter of water. I mean, 
my hose is not capable of extinguishing that fire, so I'm not going to give you, I'm going to spare you my shriek. <laughs> but our son, our daughter, and my wife came running because the shriek told them there was something going on here so important that they were supposed to drop everything and they submitted to me. Yes? So what I'm hoping that you're getting is that there are times, emergencies, when someone yells, someone screams, someone, and that is a fitting time for everyone to not question it all, just to come running. But please do not accept, woman, shut up, do what I want, whether you like it or not. Don't accept that as a virtuous demonstration of masculine headship, of masculine being like Jesus Christ. Okay, next slide. What is submission? I've got to move fast. This material is drawn primarily out of the third chapter of Genesis. If you trace what happens as humankind falls, the, you see shame submitting involuntarily. Okay. Uh, you don't particularly find that in Genesis, but you certainly do in, De- in Deuteronomy. When, when God's people are going to be promised that they are going to, after they've disobeyed God for a long, long time, God said, I'm going to send an enemy nation and they will force you to submit to them and they will march you back to their homes. And there is this submission. Hey, you Israelites, we're from Babylon. We're from Syria or Assyria. You come our way, whether you like it or not, we're going to march you into town. And by the way, you're not going to wear any clothes. We're going to force you to walk into town naked because we are your superiors and we're going to force you. But folks, that is sinful. That is imposed. That's vicious. Okay? Shameful submission submits involuntarily and it always has the property of trying to pull other people down. On the other side, oh, I'm sorry. I typed in the word fear. I intended to type in the word pride. There was a typo there. Okay, pride refuses to submit, and it lords it over other people. Submission itself submits voluntarily, and it comes under other people and lifts people up. Folks, submission is a beautiful, beautiful thing that can be corrupted. Okay. So if you have been hurt because you have been dehumanized, you have been tyrannized, please do not accept that as you coming under the doctrine of submission. Instead, please accept that as you coming under the doctrine of tyranny. Next slide. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Okay? The Old Testament teaches that rebellious, Stubborn children uh, are not a good thing. The Old Testament has a stricter standard of parenting than we do in this culture. And I'm not going to defend God in Deuteronomy 21, but the consequences, the implications uh, of parents allowing a stubborn, disobedient older child, not younger child, uh, because the rest of the passage goes on to talk about drunkenness and debauchery. Okay? 
the, the text says that the consequences for that older, stubborn, disobedient child are way, way, way stricter than we're comfortable with. What's really cool, really cool about Paul in this particular passage is he's saying, dads, don't provoke your children. Don't be a father who produces the kind of child that is condemned in Deuteronomy 21. Dad, you are not free to do whatever you bloomin' well please. You are not the head of the family that gets to be harsh, unnecessarily harsh. Dad, you are under the scrutiny of God the Father. You are not the all-powerful one. That's what Paul is saying here. And that's what happens when people come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Other people become more important because God loves everyone. God wants his goodness disseminated to everyone. Dads, you are not a power unto yourselves. Yes. Okay. My time's about done. I think I have some more slides, but we'll, we'll cut it off just a moment. Next slide, please. Okay. Oh, gosh. Men, this is going to make some of us squirm. I'm going to share with you basic findings of a very significant field of social sciences today. PhDs are given in these questions. There is a significant industry that, re that makes a lot of money for people in working in this field. And these researchers make a living out of going to, typically to adults, and they ask the question, did your dad love you? Or they ask the question, did your dad act lovingly towards you? And these researchers have found four basic answers. Okay. One is, yeah, dad loved me. Or mom and dad loved me, absolutely. And when, they, when they're asked, how do you know? I don't know, just do. Okay. So that's cool, that's a great answer. The second one is a little more doubtful. Did your dad love you? I think so. Sense the difference? Okay. The third one is, no, my dad did not love me. He said he loved me. I wish he did. Then the fourth one is, typically when the fourth, in the fourth category you hear expletives. I'm not going to cite any of them. But they say, absolutely not, and I want nothing to do with them. Okay. Now, my wife and I work with people, with parents, we work with families. We have seen every one of these categories. It's, it's far more common than I would wish that three and four are people that we meet. Okay. Now let's move over to the next column, which is an extension of this same subject. Did your mom, did your dad love you? Okay. And then how did your dad interact with your emotions? Men, start squirming. Men, we are notorious. You want something to cry about? I'll give you something to cry about. Heard that one? I wish you could say no. Okay. okay. When the researchers are finding that when dads 
love their kids in such a way that their kids know it. In the emotional realm, what they say is, my dad affirmed my emotions and my dad showed me how to navigate these emotional waters. That's what the people who say, yeah, absolutely, dad loved me. That's one of the things that they say. They don't say, dad took me out shooting. Dad took me to games. Now, those are good things. But the researchers are finding that the primary dividing line that people say when they're looking back on their years with their dad is, did my dad help me with my emotions? Okay. Number two, yeah, he affirmed, but he didn't help me navigate. Number three, he simply dismissed. And then the most difficult one is he not only dismissed and he shamed me for them. So, fathers... Please, please, please accept that we are not free to say we love our sons or we love our, we love our daughters just because we do. Okay. The ones who really get to answer that question are your sons and your daughters, and they're going to answer the question most precisely about 15 to 20 years from now. Okay. Allow Jesus, please, to humble you. Allow Jesus in so that you become a father who freely chooses to be like Jesus, getting down at the level of your children and speaking into them, hearing them, letting them download your peace when they're, when they're out of control. Be a dad who is actively engaged, loving. That's what you exist for. That's what you exist for. You do not exist to come home tired after work and entitled then to a beer and tube. Okay. I have nothing, no quarrel with a beer and no quarrel with the tube, but that is not what you were entitled to. Please accept that. Okay, folks, I've got to bring the ship down. So we'll stop there. God created the family so that the smallest social unit that exists might become full of the virtues and the beauties of God, the smallest, so that the family then might spread out, relating to other people at ball games, at work, at school, so that the family just might spread out, wafting the sweet perfume of godliness. Not ugly godliness, that it so often happens today, but virtuous, beautiful, attractive living. There's a gazillion people out there who are hurting, wanting peace, wanting joy, and who are very, very eager to meet people who are sources of joy. Not sources of pride, not sources of bigotry, not sources of big noses, just sources of this beauty. And therein lies happy family, and therein lies expanding love that begins to reach the world, cuts across cultural barriers, moves beyond Burien to further, and beyond further to further and further. May the mission of God expand 
beautifully all over the world, cross all cultural barriers, may Taproot Church become a pulsing heartbeat of Jesus creating a beautifully Holy Spirit woven family filled with a gazillion different cultures and differences, yet all of us tied together by this commitment to the love of Jesus Christ, to this embodiment of the things that Jesus loves. That's a good life. It's a beautiful life. And I wish this blessing upon you and upon us. Amen? Well, I'm supposed to say something. I haven't a clue what I'm supposed to say. So, What? I'm supposed to pray. Oh, okay, good. Okay. Father, thank you so much for this teaching, this beautiful life that you have given us in Jesus. And I pray that you would fill us with motivation, with desire, with zeal to step into the virtues of Jesus. Children, wife, husband, and the different roles, may we embrace Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.